the Burnsville Police Department. Uh, let's see, we're dividing uh, appellant's argument. Um, Mr. Burrell, you're going first for 15 minutes, and then um, Mr. Maddell for five minutes. Is that right? All right, please proceed. May it please the court, my name is Andy Burrell. I represent the appellant KM in this case. On February 26, 2019, the Burnsville Police Department <coughs> requested and obtained a search warrant to search the law office and home of my client KM. A couple of days later, we reached out to the lawyer for the Burnsville Police Department. This was on March 4th, 2019. Had some conversation and provided him with a draft of the motion we intended to file. The very next morning, March 5th at 8.30, the Burnsville Police Department, unbeknownst to us, filed a search warrant requesting uh, permission to search the electronic information that had been seized from the lawyer's office. <coughs> About uh, an hour and 20 minutes later, the search warrant application was granted and that search began. At 3.08 that same day, March 5th, we filed our motion to be heard in the district court. The motion hearing occurred on March 8th, it was a Friday in the afternoon. The initial part of the hearing involved me telling the district court judge what had happened, that the search of a lawyer's office had, had occurred. Uh, I gave the judge the search warrant um, itself. I gave the judge the search warrant receipt return and inventory. And I told the court that I had asked for the affidavit accompanying the search warrant to be provided to me, but it had been refused. I explained to the court that this information that the police had seized consisted of between 1,500 and 2,000 electronically stored files in a lawyer's office. I explained to the court that there were uh, attorney-client communications, that there was attorney-client work product, that there was uh, statements that the clients themselves had written to the lawyer explaining what had happened in the case. I of course did not know that the search uh, was already, as it turns out, mostly completed. And what I was asking the court for, the court inquired of me, what is it that you want me to do? And I told the judge, I want you to stop the bleeding. I want you to stop this rummaging around in these files until we can have a hearing. I want an order in any form. I'll take a TRO. When you're saying you want an order in any form, let's figure out what the procedural posture of the case was. Yes. It was, you didn't make this motion in the criminal proceeding because it wasn't a criminal proceeding. Correct. So you made, was it a civil case that your motion started? The, the, the court administrator would file my motion as a civil motion. Well, I'm trying to figure that out because um, as any first year law student knows, you start a lawsuit by serving a summons and complaint. And I don't see a complaint in the civil case that you started. Why not? Because, Your Honor, we were, we were attempting to get this matter in front of a district court judge as fast as we could. And what we wanted to do was to, to explain what had occurred and get some kind of equitable relief. Yeah, but motions it was don't our, occur in a vacuum. You need a case. We had and a case. We filed the motion. They assigned a number. We had a case. We had a hearing in front of a district court judge. The and then what were, were you seeking, if you had a case, yeah. then under the rules of civil procedure, you must have been seeking a temporary injunction of some sort. Is that right? Well, that's one of the things I suggested to the court. I suggested a writ of prohibition. Well, the court, what the, you suggested, I mean, when we have pleadings, you've got to ask for something. And, and if you've got a civil case, then you need to be asking for an injunction under Rule 65, and I don't even see Rule 65 mentioned in the motion. Well, Rule 65 was not mentioned in the motion. 
But district courts have broad equitable powers. They have the power to, to do the right thing, to use the law, to maintain the status quo when there is grave harm threatened. This was what I viewed as an emergency situation. We, we were not being given any information about what was going on. We have an ethical duty to uh, preserve our clients' confidences and secrets. We have an ethical duty to assert the privilege, and we have to do it as fast as we can, and that's what we did. And, Counsel, you did ask for um, such other relief that, as may be appropriate. Yes. My, my, my thinking when I filed this pleading was to invoke the court's equitable jurisdiction and legal jurisdiction. My idea was this was an emergency situation. We were getting no cooperation from the people who had conducted these searches. And what we needed to do was to get in front of a district court judge as fast as we could. Counsel, you, know? you also referenced um, the statutory sections, I think you said, in your motion, um, 626.01 exec. Yes. Um, were you relying on uh, 626.21? The return of property? Um, yeah, there's the two different sections, and that that is return of property. If you're aggrieved by a search, yeah, that's I mean, that point was, two that, one. Excuse me for interrupting. That's part of what we're saying, yeah. Well, counsel, there are two provisions within Chapter 626 dealing with the return of property. Mm -hmm. There's point oh four and there's point two one. Which one or ones were you relying on, and what's the difference between the two? And what, what should the district, which one should the district court have proceeded under? Well, we were we alleged the whole the whole statute. My my idea was to get this in front of a judge and freeze the situation, and that's that's what we were attempting to do. I mean, this is this case where the police, as it turned out, had already begun to search the client files. And they, we can tell from the record now that in the ex parte hearing, the police officer and the, pro and the city attorney told the judge that they were conducting these yeah, searches. But what you're saying, counsel, is that the judge in treating this as a motion under 626.04 made an error. Yes, there was, there was a lot more at stake here. And the problem is, I don't see a complaint. I don't see a, a motion. I don't see any claims laid out in some sort of order so that we could really say that the judge made a mistake in considering this a 626.04 motion. How do you respond to that? Well, I think that the, a fair reading of the, the documents and the, the hearing in the district court shows a, a correct attempt to invoke the court's equitable jurisdiction. I mean, I, I don't think that this is a case where the, the niceties of 626 ought to control what happens. This is a case where the police went into a lawyer's office and took 1,500 to 2,000 files. And at the time of this hearing, they well knew that they were searching them. They were searching them electronically, and they were searching them manually. Manually means they were opening them up and looking at the files. And to say that the district court judge had no obligation to safeguard these <laughs> safeguard these people's confidential information would be to exhort form over substance. Counsel, if I may, though, yeah. at this point, any harm that was done is done. And as I understand the state's position in large part, it's that the issues that you're raising now, which are really search and seizure issues, constitutional issues, um, really now belong in the form of an omnibus hearing in the criminal proceeding. This is a Rule 11 matter where you can raise probable cause, you can raise evidentiary issues, you can raise um, all of those, obviously the search and seizure issues. And it does seem that that is, a, is now a more appropriate forum. And I'm, I'd, I'd like your response in particular to the state sites, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, Bonji, the Bonji case. It's a 626.21 uh, case. But it does seem to say that um, these kinds of matters should be handled in the criminal proceeding, even if the complaint, as happened here, gets filed after the the search has occurred. So what do we do about that? Well, that's, that's, a, that's not the correct result here. 
The fact is that what, hap what is happening now is that the state is in the possession of 1,500 to 2,000 client files that contain the unre unrefuted evidence is they contain attorney-client privilege stuff, work product material, statements by clients about their cases, and they remain entirely free to rummage through these things as they wish. And that is a continued harm to all these clients that is separate and apart from this idea about, well, we can determine whether the um, search and seizure was lawful in an omnibus hearing about about the, the lawyer. These clients are still suffering injuries. The continued retention of this material, the ability to look through it, constitutes an ongoing injury to core principles of our system of civil and criminal justice. So I don't agree with that at all. Have we ever found out what the keywords that were searched were? Have you ever found that out? I have not uh, been told that. And that's not, so it's not in the record, but you, they've not disclosed to you what, what kind of search they've done? No. Okay. Um, Council, there's some suggestion in the record that, that the materials have been stored with the police department and that the, the searching has, has stopped. Am I correct about that? Or what's your understanding of the record on, on, on that, on that point? Pending some resolution. My, well, I don't here. think that's correct. I don't have any information that that's correct. There's nothing to prevent them from searching it every... I guess that's what I'm asking. Do you yeah. know of anything right now that prevents them from continuing, to the extent they have been, from continuing to search those files? No, there's nothing. Nothing at all. Council, well, can we just, I just want to take a step back and get your position on what should have happened. Um, I mean, let's, let's just take a hypothetical. Um, okay. and forget about this case for a minute. But the police have probable cause to believe that a lawyer is uh, committing a criminal conspiracy with clients um, and defrauding members of the public and clients are participating in that fraud. How is it that the police are supposed to investigate um, if they can't access the client files that the lawyer might have? What I think should happen is this. I think that in those circumstances, the police should go to the district court with a search warrant and explain what it is they want to get and why they want to get it and that the district court judge did they we the police did that up well, to this point I'm right finished. i mean i yeah, mean I'm, okay so so then what the district court judge should order the police to to seize the material bring it to the court for safeguarding not look at it and conduct an adversary hearing after notice to the lawyer and the affected clients and decide what um, what should what should be searched and under what circumstances. So before the police look at the material, the lawyer and the clients who the police believe are involved in the criminal activity come into court and there's a contested hearing about whether the police can look at the information. Right. They they would have their opportunity to assert their privileges, and um, you know any any other. Uh, issues that they had in terms of being able to look at the material. And this should be done by a judge, not by um, a team, team lawyers. You know, the rule that they have that is in place now with this case is that if the, if the police think that a, a lawyer is committing a crime, they can go search his office, they can, they can take all the client files, and the files can be reviewed not by a judge, not by a lawyer, not even by law enforcement. The, the officer told the district court judge in the ex parte hearing that I was excluded from that a civilian was conducting these, the review of these files. And that's, that's completely uh, not proper. It's, it's a complete abdication of a judicial function. It's, it's a function of the courts to, to make decisions about privilege. Not civilians, not even lawyers. Uh, and not even uh, council does the record tell us if there was a request for an in-camera review which is sounds like what you're suggesting was there a request made at the time of the hearing that you did get for an in-camera review of the remaining documents by by the district court judge or did you, you make a request on behalf of your client no, for in-camera review no what I requested at the time of the hearing was that the judge order them not to look at anything 
until uh, we could make an order. And the judge refused to do that. And it turns out uh, that, you know, we got this transcript after we filed our first brief. But it turns out that what the judge knew and what the prosecutor knew that I didn't know was that they had already searched them. And so I think that what the judge was thinking was, you know, they've already begun to search, so there's no point in me telling them not to do it. But that was the request that I was making at the time of the hearing. Counsel, when did your client get a copy of the, of the, of her client files back? How long was it before she got a it, copy? Uh, it was, as I recall, it was a couple of three months. I'm not sure how long it was. It was, it was a time, but I, I don't remember exactly how long. Counsel, one more question. I know your red light is on. <clears throat> At the time of the motion hearing, you had a copy of the search warrant, the first search warrant, correct? But not the affidavit. Right. And when did your client get a copy of the second search warrant that had been issued that mor the morning that you made the motion? We received that, I believe, after, we, uh, after this court took review. So you, you started this proceeding, if, if you started a proceeding on March 5th, and it would have been then months later before you got a, co a copy of the second warrant? It was months later before we got a copy of the second warrant. It was after we filed our, our principal brief that we got the uh, ex parte hearing, and uh, yes. Okay. Thank you, counsel. Um, Mr. Maddow, you have five minutes. Thank you, Chief Justice Gilday, may it please the court. I represent four clients of KM. None of these clients were implicated by or involved in the search warrant or the subsequent criminal complaint. But now we now know from Mr. Burrell's argument that all of KM's electronic files, text messages, emails, all client files were taken. Our position is that the state has no right to possess, let alone search or review my client's privileged communications. And at essence here, is just last Thursday, the Fourth Circuit held that the Sixth Amendment's Effective Assistance Council plainly includes, and I'm quoting here, the privacy of communications with counsel. Your honors have the decision of O'Connor versus Johnson, which essentially held the exact same thing. Counsel, in O'Connor versus Johnson, the situation in that case was that the lawyer, the search warrant was directed at client business records being held by the lawyer. The lawyer was not the target. And at the end, when Justice Wall lays out the holding of the court, she specifically makes reference in, in some words to the fact that the lawyer wasn't the target. So if, in this case, the lawyer is the target. So how do you distinguish O'Connor versus Johnson? Two different ways, Your Honor. First of all, the O'Connor versus Johnson case contained this quote. It is unreasonable in any case to permit law enforcement officers to peruse miscellaneous documents in an attorney's office while attempting to locate documents listed in the search warrant. The notion there is that it's simply impermissible for the state to go rummaging through client files in order, to, in order to discover what's relevant and what's not. That doesn't matter if the attorney is involved or not. What we're asking for is that judges, not certainly not a digital examiner for the Dakota County Sheriff's Office, who isn't even looking for privilege. They have, there has been, and I want to emphasize that to your honors, there has been no privilege review of any of these documents. They're simply looking for relevance. That is what's being hit on here. So when we're talking about the O'Connor case, yes, that, that, that attorney and that decision specifically says, yes, this person, this attorney was not accused of misconduct. So the Dakota County Electronic Crimes Task Force wasn't really a taint team or a filter team. It was a relevance team. Yes, and it's not a team. It's one person. Well, I couldn't tell from the search warrant application, it made it sound like there were gonna be multiple people involved and then there'd be one independent person. And I'm gonna ask Mr. Schmidt about that. And, and, and this goes to, I think, Justice Thiessen's uh, question as well. If you look at the respondent's addendum at pages 11 through 18, you can see the actual electronic things that they actually looked and, and conducted searches on. And that goes through the hard drives and it goes through the portable hard drives and the laptops and, and then there's a compact tower. I estimated and looked up, and this, those, those machines altogether are about 3.5 terabytes of capacity. By those documents that they thought, that they identified on those searches that actually resulted in actual documents being found, they found 34 documents in addition to some Quicken files for MW and JS, who are the, the, the clients in this case. 
The search terms were names, Justice Deason. That's one of the things that they said in there. MW's last name, that client, is one of the most common names in Minnesota. There's an avenue in Maplewood. There's an avenue in West St. Paul with that same name. There are businesses with that name. There's a retired judge with that name. And I looked at this court's database with respect to licensed attorneys in the state. 99 attorneys have that exact same last name. So what's the prize if we figure it out? <laughs> Fair. Point being, if you think that there's not going to be false positives with respect to that search, and every false positive on that involves a potential client of KM that had nothing to do with this search warrant, had nothing to do with the criminal cases, and is letting the state rummage through and look at that. Now, those are just the keyword searches. If you look at that same addendum, you also find that they're doing manual reviews of some, that's a quote, some documents from May 1, 2018 and on. My clients at those times were charged with criminal offenses after that time. So potentially the state is, has looked at those documents. And to your question, Justice Lulhug, regarding O'Connor, this court held, once information, this is a quote from O'Connor, once information is revealed to the police, the privileges are lost and the information cannot be erased from the minds of the police. Which goes to the question here, what could this, what can this court do to, I mean, the damage has been done, assuming there's damage. Um, in this case, so what can what can we do? Chief Justice, may I answer yes. the question? My time is done. Yes. What can you do, Justice Tyson? The damage is not done. The damage is currently it's the fact of disclosure. Privilege is not just there in order to prevent disclosure. It's to to stop disclosure. And right now, they are still accessing these documents. They should not have my client's property. It should be returned immediately. And is that under uh, point two one? Sorry, Chief. Go I ahead. Go 609.21. I think, Your Honors, to, to uh, Justice Lohuck's questions with respect to jurisdiction, this court can find jurisdiction in any way that it wants. The Constitution provides original jurisdiction with respect to Article One, Section uh, Article Six, Section Three. You can also find jurisdiction under Six Twenty Six Twenty One or the Special Special Proceeding Section of Four Eighty Four Subdivision One Three which, Justice Little Hogg, I do not believe requires a complaint. That's the miscellaneous privileges where I go in to maybe stop uh, subpoena du ducus tecum that's been uh, served upon me that I think is overbroad, a third party subpoena ducus tecum. I do not need to start a complaint with respect to that subdivision. And it seems to be applicable here that this is a special proceeding. It certainly is with respect to my clients. So tell me that. Um Sorry, tell me that section again, the special proceeding. Four, 484 subdivision. It's, it's one, then parentheses, three, Justice Judith. You thank know you. It, it, thank you, you counsel. You understand what I'm talking about. Yes, thank you, counsel. Mr. Schmidt. May it please the court, counsel, John Schmidt, assistant Hennepin County attorney on behalf of the Burnsville Police Department in the state of Minnesota. The order on review before this court was extremely limited based upon a motion for return of property, which was predicated on this court's decision in O'Connor. The propriety of the underlying search warrants and the execution of those warrants, much of what we just heard about, are not issues before the court. Well, counsel, let me ask a really basic question. Is it true there are hundreds and maybe thousands of clients' files in the government's possession that are completely unrelated to the subject matter of the ongoing criminal case. Yes. And have all those files and copies of them been returned to the attorney? Yes. Not just a mirror image of a hard drive, but um, the copies and, and there, in other words, the state and the city of Burnsville no longer have any of those files. No, we so, still have. So they, they can't be looking at them? We still have the original files. She was uh, so you've still got image you've still copy. got them? Yes. Why? Because we need the original evidence in trial in case, uh, for a number of different reasons. One, on rebuttal, in case there are issues that are brought up with the search terms that were used to say, hey, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that you didn't find on my computer. And so we need that in order to broaden the search that actually was conducted. Because the search conducted, which is not in the record before the court, 
was extremely narrow. The search was for the names of the alleged victims involved. This was not a rummaging to find more victims involved in this case. This was to look at those So then why victims. can't you return all the electronic data that does not relate to MW and JS? Because th there's no way, this is unlike O'Connor, and this is unlike the situation where you could go in and, and pick out the paper files from the file cabinet and say, this is the only one that I need because this is the victim involved, the alleged victim involved in this case. This is a hard drive and it contains the original evidence of the alleged victims involved in this case. But it also, we can't break- Are you afraid KM's going to assert a foundation objection or something like that at the- That's a possibility. And so that justifies keeping hundreds and thousands of client files unrelated to the subject of the criminal investigation? Yes, and here's another reason why. If you look at this court's opinion in State versus Anderson, that is an opinion involving jail calls. Every jail call is recorded, uh, including those with the, the uh, person, the defendant's attorney. Now whether those, so that attorney-client privilege is in the hands of the state. Whether it's reviewed or not is a different question. Well, counsel, anyone who's been to a jail knows there's a big sign up on the phone there that says all these calls are being recorded. The clients of KM didn't know that their files were gonna be seized by law enforcement. I mean, how, how does a jail call case um, affect this at all? It goes to the issue of harm. And that's what the court said in that case, that there was no harm because the police did not review those jail calls. And, when, and in that situation, when the police did, they were listening in on the attorney-client conversation. They stopped, they hung up, there was a hearing held in the criminal proceedings as which, where it should be held. Would, would your client be prepared to stipulate to an injunction from this court that says from this point onward, no client files unless they relate to JW or MW or JS shall be reviewed by law enforcement? Shall be reviewed? Yes. We, we can't review any files. That's already in place. The warrant was specific to just the victims involved in that case. If we want to review further files, we need to go to the court and say, hey court, give us an order that allows us to search further. That is already in place. And if the police go and start rummaging through and investigating and looking at the those files, they're in violation of that search warrant, which is a court order. And there are remedies for that, including perjury, uh, there's a civil uh, crime in their Olson 1983 claims. There's a number of different remedies that can be raised if the police do what is alleged to have happened by the appellants in this case. But that is the fundamental problem of this situation is that we don't know. We don't have the record. To so a, a word search is not a search? A word search is a search. But, and the word search was done on all these documents? Yes. So they did search all these documents. They searched everything, but it's whether or not the human eye looks at it. And that's where the harm piece comes in. Is there, is there so something- So a computer looking is a search, but it's not a harmful search. Right. That's the rule that you're articulating. The rule that I'm articulating is if this court is going to go beyond what is uh, the limited record, the rule that I'm articulating is one that is prospective, two that is based on a case by case basis, and three, that is examined for reasonableness under the totality of the circumstances for each individual case. So if you look at the reasonableness that happened in this particular case, you can see from the search warrants that actually are in evidence that police took care at every single step along of this investigation. Council, well, what I about, can I just follow one thing? Yeah, what sure. about Riley? What about the, you know, the cases where, maybe that's not the right case, Supreme Court case though recently where they, where the Supreme Court basically said the searches of the telephone data towers, that's a search and clearly a human eye didn't see it, but it was still a violation of the Fourth Amendment. So, I, so there's harm. Sure. And so that, how, does, how, how does that, so why is the search not the harm? That goes into Carpenter and that was Carpenter, a very yeah, thank specific you. decision about cell phones and your, your location with cell phones. And <coughs> the court was careful to limit that to cell phones distinguish it from third party records. Uh, and so in that situation, you needed something more. You needed uh, a warrant in order to search that. We had a warrant in this case. Counsel, I've got the second warrant right in front of me and it doesn't say anything restricting the police to word searches. It says, now therefore you, and it lists a bunch of police officers, including the Burnsville police officers, 
are commanded to enter and search between the hours of 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. to search the above described devices for the described property and things. It doesn't say you have to do it by computer. It doesn't say you have to do a specified word search. It just says you can go, go look at the stuff. And, and in the warrant itself, it talks about the specific alleged victims involved. And so this is the warrant to search the computer. I just want to make sure I'm on track with the correct warrant, right? This is the I'm, warrant to I'm, actually. This is the second warrant. And I'm not talking about the application for the second warrant. I'm talking about the warrant itself. In the, in the warrant itself, there is the victim's names listed. In the order itself on the first page of that order, there are the victim's names listed. Sure, there. but it doesn't say you have to search through the database using only the victim's names. You could conceivably start at file number one and go document by document to see if those names are in there. In other words, they can look at everything. And that goes to a rule that whether it should be more specific in these types of situations, a rule that this court has not yet pronounced, and if it does, it should be a prospective rule, that you should spec uh, uh, particularize the manner of execution. There's no rule right now that says you have to tell the police the exact manner of the execution. Would you be comfortable with that rule in the prospective manner? Yes. If, if you're looking at, for a prospective manner, if you're looking at attorney's law offices to search for a, where the attorney is alleged to be a criminal, to be more particular in the warrant to specify what the manner of execution would be, I think that is a, that on a case-by-case -case basis could be reasonable. Well, counsel, let, let me press you. Would it be unlawful, would it violate the warrant for one of these police officers to say, I'm going to go to the search the John Schmidt client file to see if there's anything in there about MW or JS? Would it violate the warrant? Well, if it's a computer search term that's being run looking for those search I'm names. saying just going, just turning on the screen, going into the document, and looking at everything within that file. Would it violate the strict terms of the warrant here? Yes. Probably not. Well, so then how does that, you, you answered me earlier that they could only do it by way of computer. Correct, and that's where you go to the affidavit application applying for the warrant. Yeah, and but the affidavit's where, not the warrant. The warrant is the warrant. The warrant is the warrant, that's correct. But if, if in the application where he specified what manner of execution by having this third party team involved, by having somebody else, one person doing the search terms, if they're outside of that, then arguably you have perjury issues. Counsel, I'd like where, where to talk it, a little bit about the procedural posture of this case. And just, um, uh, you know, it seems to me there are all kinds of issues regarding how the police behaved and what was done here. And how, what is your position on what appellants should do now to get those issues properly before uh, a decision maker? KM's remedy is in the criminal proceedings. In that, in that case, she can make all of the challenges that are being made here today based upon a record with no testimony, with limited exhibits, uh, and with arguments that are uh, stretching a bit in order to get issues before this court. Uh, the Doe's remedy is they could have done a number of different things, which they didn't do. Instead, they intervened in this case. The Doe's can go ahead and file a motion under uh, 21 and try to develop testimony. In that statute, it says you can do these things and develop testimony. You can file a complaint and seek a TRO to prevent any further searches going forward. Uh, all of that is available for the does to do at this point in time, and KM's remedy is to deal with these issues in the criminal proceedings. Not doing that and, and announcing a rule of law <coughs> where you are allowed to challenge these issues in this type of procedural posture without a complaint, without meeting the Dahlberg factors for an injunction, uh, allows for a pre-charging motion to suppress. And that's not how the system works. It's supposed to be in the criminal proceedings where all of these issues are but, raised. But counsel, what happens if the criminal proceedings take a long time to develop, as in sometimes these white collar cases do, or maybe it's never even filed? In the meantime, you have an attorney who's presumed to be innocent until shown otherwise, without her files, um, with 
information of other clients in other hands, and she could be subjected to disciplinary proceedings for that. I mean, it seems to me, um, w when did she get a copy of her files back? I April mean, she 5th. had, she says she had 25 ongoing cases, so it was a, a month after the search that she uh, got her. Uh, yes, I mean, it, it was April 3rd is when she got her uh, digital copy of all of her files back. It, it seems to me, even if we look under even 626.04, is it good faith to hold that many unrelated client files while you're looking at suspected criminal activity for two clients? I mean, it, it just seems like she should have gotten at least a copy of her files back almost immediately. And, and I think the Minnesota State Bar Association said it very well, you know, lawyers aren't, who are suspected of wrongdoing, they're not immunized from um, searches and seizures, but you can't just treat them like they're ordinary searches and seizures. No, and again, that's, that is the rule that I'm articulating too, is reasonableness examined upon case-by-case -case basis. And perhaps- But, but 626.04 says we're supposed to look at the good faith, that which, which seems to me to be a kind of reasonableness review. So can't we do it in this case and prospectively? Uh, no, and here's why. Because one, it was reasonable to hold the materials. They were holding it in good faith pending criminal investigation, which is demonstrated by the charges that were filed. The statute is very clear that if in good faith you're holding these materials, the district court shall deny the motion. And so following the plain language of that statute, the district court did what it should have done. Perhaps the, her digital copy should have been made faster, uh, and that's something that should happen in the future. It was made here in this case, and in the record that's not before the court, the police stopped their investigation pending this process before the district court. Once the Court of Appeals denied the writ, they started the search again and then got her the digital copy back. So there was a delay in there and even doing the search, looking at the digital information, making a copy of the information, pending these district court proceedings, pending the Court of Appeals writ of prohibition, uh, that also factors in to why she didn't get her materials back uh, faster. And counsel, would you agree that even though there was a delay here in which looking from this perspective and saying and counting the days looks like a long, long time, and I'm sure it felt like a long time to Cam, but when you're looking at the normal course of business per se as it relates to these sorts of events, it's really not that long of a period of time? Would you agree with me? I would agree with you, yes. Yeah, I, I think in, in the whole of things, when you look at what was actually before <coughs> this report, you, you sort of ask the question of how far should the district court have gone beyond what was presented to it in order to figure out these issues. And the, there was no complaint. There was nothing argued about the TRO or injunction standards or factors. It was about O'Connor. And it was about my client is innocent and you're looking for this attorney's client's information. Uh, and so O'Connor doesn't apply here and therefore we should get all of our stuff back. The district court learned, no, that's not actually the case. There's a lot more going on here, and it is the attorney who is the target of the investigation. Counsel, I want to ask you a question about what the process should be, and I recognize that your position is this discussion should be happening in the, uh, at the omnibus hearing stage in the criminal proceeding, so bear with me here a little bit, even though I, I think you may see this a little differently. But it strikes me that um, appellants are correct that given the privilege issues that are involved here, um, there probably seems to be some process other than um, relying on the good faith of the police department. And I don't mean in any way to implicate that, but it strikes me that a neutral magistrate, um, uh, some form of um, outside supervision, am I right or wrong about that? Of whether that should happen? No, of of um, the execution of this search warrant and assuring that um, unaffected clients are in, uh, in fact not facing uh, disclosure of information. I think in the right case, on a case-by-case -case basis, a special master or a neutral magistrate could be appropriate. And I conceded that in my brief in saying that 
if you have a bunch of unknown victims, then perhaps a special master might be necessary because the word searches that you might do on that computer are going to be very, very different from the word searches that were done in this case. And so if you are rummaging around to discover victims, as what happened in the pool case, which involves a doctor and doctor-patient uh, privileges, then perhaps you do need a special master or a neutral magistrate. But given the facts of this case and the totality of these circumstances where we have known victims, this search here was reasonable. But again, in terms of the execution of the reasonableness, the legality of the, the warrants, that wasn't presented to the district court. Those weren't the arguments that were made below. And if you, frankly, you can't just say, I invoke the entire Constitution of the United States and of Minnesota and expect that every single argument under those documents have been Although, preserved. Although, counsel, I'm not, I'm not sure that's what uh, occurred exactly. I mean, I mean, the arguments were very broad from appellant's counsel. There's no question about that. But he was specific that he was concerned about the attorney-client privilege. He was concerned about uh, uh, work product. Um, he was concerned about Sixth Amendment uh, right to effective counsel because when you don't have private communication or when you're not assured as a client that you have private communications with your attorney, that implicates the Sixth Amendment, among other concerns. So he didn't drill down, I would agree, in, in great detail, but I think what's concerning to me is the almost complete lack of um, inquiry from the district court about those issues that are the heart of, of, our, our, of the practice of law in terms of the attorney-client relationship. And so, Shouldn't the court have done something else, particularly when, you know, I'm looking at this first application for the search warrant, when the, the police department talks about that they reviewed files in general to look for files specific to MW and JS. I mean, alarms should have gone off, don't you? I, I would think for the judge saying, oh my gosh, they are looking through everything. So something else should have been, should have been inquired about. But when, when the arguments made to the district court are about O'Connor, and the district court considers O'Connor and follows the plain language of the statute based upon what was before it, it's hard to say that the district court should dig deeper and go further, especially when you know the district court sees from the ex parte proceedings that there are criminal matters being investigated about the attorney who's the target and will likely have the forum to properly challenge all this. And that forum is in the criminal proceedings, where those alarms can go off, where you can have testimony at an omnibus hearing, and you can have cross-examination and accept exhibits, and maybe this issue gets back before the court with a better record. Counsel, is there anything in the second search warrant that deals with the searching of the digital devices that prevents law enforcement from reviewing privileged information? The second search warrant, at least in terms of the affidavit, uh, in terms I'm not of the talking order, about the affidavit. The warrant is the warrant. In terms of the order itself. Is there anything in the warrant? No. No. In terms of the affidavit, there, there is information in there. And, and let's be clear, though, because this isn't the investigating well, attorney. Where in the affidavit does the uh, affiant police officer say we're not going to look at any privileged information? The, the officer says, I am aware that she's an attorney. I'm aware that this presents special circumstances. And because of that, we are going to utilize a different team who's going to look at this. I thought it was one person. It was one person. So it's not a team. It is not a team. Is that okay. a lawyer? It is, I, it's an IT person. So the IT person gets to look at privileged information? The IT person is looking for, and really this is what they're looking at. Because it's so narrow, because it's about the names of the individuals, the IT person is looking at is that person's name in this document or not? Mr. Schmidt, the question is simple. Did the IT person get to look at privileged information? It Probably. I don't Cal know. Counsel, were there any requests made to the district court um, upon that first hearing, which I believe was held on March 5th, for any sort of a protective order? Not that I recall. Nothing in the record that you've seen? Nothing in the record that I see. And there's certainly nothing in the record in terms of arguing about the specific injunction factors or making uh, substantive or procedural due process claims. Um, 
a lot of these Fourth Amendment claims that are being raised right now, all of this is new on appeal and new before this court. The Council, should, shouldn't we, I want to go back to, to this, this one individual, it sounds like, in the IT department. It's not that person, you said that person's not an attorney, correct? I, I don't believe so. So you have potentially a non-attorney reviewing or at least looking at documents that arguably could be privileged. I, I understand your argument to be he's, it's a rel, it is a relevancy thing. He's looking for initials, essentially. Correct. But it's also possible, though, that he's coming across, he or she is, is coming across information that is privileged. It is a she, and it's, that is possible. Has anybody done a privilege review? Did the, because then she, that person turned it over to the police to look at all these documents. With the names of the alleged victims involved, yes. Right, but has, any, has anybody reviewed whether those are privileged or not? I, I don't know. And that's the problem but, with this case, is we don't have the record. Well, but did she to, turn it over to the county attorney to make that decision? Did she turn it over to the, so she, the, she turned it over to the police and then they could look at all of these documents? She turned over the documents that had the names of the alleged victims. To the police? Correct. And then they reviewed it, but they don't, they're not in any position. They're not trained lawyers. They're not in any position to make a determination of whether these are privileged documents or not. But these are the alleged victims. And so if we're talking well, about- it, but, but so police can look at privileged documents between a lawyer and his client? With the alleged victims who waive that privilege. Oh, they waive the, okay. All right, that's fair. Because I suppose not, you'd also have the argument that the crime fraud exception for those people. Correct. So if they're only looking at documents of clients who have either waived the privilege or um, can assert that or you can assert the crime fraud exception. Right. Counsel, if, as I understand your argument, it's really that there isn't a, there isn't a record that's to tell us all of these questions that we're asking. I mean, it's right. a very small, it's a very limited record. It's an extremely limited record. And we need the testimony from that IT person. And that testimony is going to come in the criminal proceedings. There's an opportunity there to cross-examine that person, to figure out what exactly the search terms were, figure out what she looked at, all of that should happen in the criminal proceedings. And, and I'm, I'm also still not clear about the foundation argument about why you have to hold the files of everybody else. If they make a foundational argument about uh, us possessing, do we have the original, do we not, there's a, there's a problem there to get that in evidence into the trial court. Number two, if she raises issues on rebuttal and says, well, your search was too limited by only searching for these two names, you should have done a broader search in which you would have found these documents. We need to be able to have the original evidence to go to a judge and say, judge, let us do those search terms. Let us find those additional documents that we missed because our search was so narrow. And ultimately, this court has held in State versus Anderson that the state can hold privilege information. That is with the jail calls. And the police, in that case, listened to the jail calls. So there is no harm that exists in this case because no human eye has actually looked at it. And I've cited Anderson in our case. I didn't see any response to it in the reply brief, and I, I don't know if they have a response now, but that case is very helpful, at least for the position that we're making, that it should be on a case-by-case -case basis under the guise of reasonableness. So if I, just a question. I presume as well that if you return the originals that would allow KM or a person to not saying that she would to, to doctor them I mean you, you that is that that's is that possible or is that a concern please answer the question uh, yes that is a very valid concern that if you return the originals they'll say well actually you missed all these other documents that had been doctored or created after the search that we did thank you counsel thank you uh, now for rebuttal, um, Mr. Burrell, you're taking five minutes? Yes, sir. Okay. Go ahead. Now on page uh, 20 of the hearing in the district court, the, the non-ex uh, parte part, the last, about the last thing I asked the district court judge is uh, this. May I ask you a question, Your Honor? I have two. Would you order them not to look at these materials until the court rules? The district court judge responded, I'm going to leave everything as it is. Second question, I say, I don't understand your answer. The court, no. 
So we had asked the court to make an effort to protect this uh, information and the court denied uh, my request. This, the district court clearly had jurisdiction under 48401 uh, sub 3 because it says the district court shall have original jurisdiction in the following cases. Three, in all special proceedings not exclusively cognizable by some other court or tribunal. Counsel, when Mr. Mantle cited that, I looked it up. Yes. And it seems to me the special proceeding may refer to 62604, a proceeding of that type. But it doesn't, special proceeding isn't a general civil case where you're making constitutional claims, I would think. Well, once you invoke the jurisdiction of the district court, you also invoke its equitable jurisdiction. And the, the relief that we were seeking was in the nature of equitable relief. And there was no other way to protect this information and so the, the district court was obliged to to help us defend the privileges. I mean we're obliged to to try to get the court to do this and that's what we did. The the counsel, question counsel if I may I I guess the thing I'm most concerned about at this point is is whether this is the right form. Um, you heard sort of the some of the questions that were asked of Mr. Sure. Smith regarding the IT person and all of that. And it does seem to raise the uh, the the problem that there's a lot we don't know in this record that would be relevant um, to to an informed decision. So why shouldn't we wait? And maybe it never comes back to us. But it, yeah. but the point is that all of those things can be explored um, at an omnibus hearing. Why isn't that the route to go? Because there are no circumstances where it's constitutionally permissible for a uh, an IT tech to make a privilege review or to review privileged documents for relevancy. And so it really doesn't matter what the testimony is. This, this is this is a purely judicial function. To but he's not, I think Mr. Smith would say he's not looking, the tech is not looking at privilege. The tech is looking for the initials MW and JS. He's looking at privileged documents, or she. She's looking at privileged attorney-client work product documents. And they're not just searching them electronically. If you look at the, um, if you look at the uh, respondent's addendum on page 18, for example, it talks about manually reviewing them. I mean, manually reviewing them means like we open an email. You click on it and you read it. So what we have is the, the circumstance where a district court judge issues a search warrant to go get attorney-client files and let's, let's uh, an IT tech uh, review them for relevance, not privilege, relevance. And then anything that the tech thinks is relevant, they give to the cops. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. Those are all the facts you need to know to make a judgment about this. This idea of remanding, it's simply a way to avoid review what happened. Counsel, am, am I right that the warrant is the warrant, that you, you the determine warrant. the reasonableness of the warrant based on the four corners of the warrant? You don't look to the the application. You're, you're absolutely right. That's the. Book. And as I look at the second warrant, it says it's giving authority not just to this IT person in the Dakota County Electronic Crimes Task Force to search these files. It's giving authority to Jeff Klingfuss, the detective in charge of the investigation, and several other members of the Burnsville Police Department. Um, is they have is, a general warrant to search the files as they wish. That's what that gave. There's not limitations on it. You don't read the uh, affidavit to imply limitations in the execution of the law. So respond to Mr. Schmidt's argument that these cops could be in trouble if they went and looked at these files right now. I don't think they would be in trouble. I think they'd be acting within the scope of the warrant as it's written on the paper. And furthermore, that's, that's right. Counsel, in your view, could yeah. take the computers out of it for a minute. I mean, let's assume that the police go into an office and they're searching for paper records um, that relate to an ongoing criminal enterprise. Yeah. Can they do that when it's a lawyer's firm? Or, 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 or they just can't search law offices at all? No, I don't think they, I'm not advocating a rule you can't search law offices. They can go seize the documents and take them to the district court judge and without looking at them and then seal them up and then we can have a hearing and talk about all these things 
that seemed to interest them now that they had no interest in in the district court. Thank you, Council. Um, Mr. Maddell, you have 10, ten minutes. Your Honor, I'd just like to begin, and I, under, I understand fully that Justice Little Hug, Justice Hudson, I believe Justice Tudish and Justice McKee both all had questions, and I believe Justice Anderson, you alluded to it as well, about the jurisdiction of the court and whether or not this makes sense that on this record that we send this back. And what I would ask that Your Honors consider is the plight of my clients. My clients learned for the first time that their privileged material were taken after the Court of Appeals already denied the writ. That's when we moved to intervene with this court, and thankfully, Your Honors, not only granted that, but des designated us appellants. That privilege review, that possession of privileged documents, as Justice Lowell Hogg found when he asked questions today, exists to this minute. So, Counsel, your point is you couldn't have inter you couldn't have proceeded any earlier than you did because I think there is a question about whether or not you are he your clients are here properly. I mean. <coughs> Yes. On a motion to intervene, that's not a cause of action. You, you, and but but your point is, you didn't know. You made my argument better than I could, Your Honor. Yes. Um, so the the it's simply inimical to me that I'm hearing in a court in 2019 from from the government that the attorney-client privilege is in possession of the state. That's a quote that you just received. That is just simply wrong. Counsel, could you not seek a protective order on behalf of your clients that this that information cannot be released to anyone pending the outcome of the case and then prior prior to further court hearing? Could we? Yes. Yes, we absolutely could if, if this re is remanded. That is not going to solve, Justice McKee, the injury that my clients are, su are suffering this minute right now. And so what's the remedy? The remedy is for your you, for your clients only is that you immediately order the state to stop looking at this and return all privileged information to a neutral judge, and the judge then tells you, here's here's the amount of stuff that can come out. Here is the actual relevant information that comes out. That a special master or a judge actually does that review, looks at the privileged documents, and tells you tells the state, here's what you can have. But, right but now, Council, don't you already have that, or am I not understanding the record? I understood Mr. Schmidt to say that the copies of the files were at least returned to Mr. Burrell. That would include your client's stuff. They still possess them. They can still the review originals. them. They can still search them, and they still have them. So you, want, you, you don't want them to have the, even keep the originals. Well, well so in fact, the, the, the distinction between original and copy, it really doesn't mean anything. What you're really saying is these are electronic documents and they should not have possession of them, period. Whether true. you call them originals, copies, or whatever, duplicates, whatever. True. Absolutely true. But then what do you do about the state's, I think, valid concern that as a matter of trial procedure, you've got the rules of evidence regarding authentication, foundation, I can't recall, recall the numbers offhand, but all of those require that they be able to submit original documentation or verify that these documents are what we say they are. Yeah. What about that? When they, because the, the criminal proceeding is going to happen. It's the complaint's been filed. They, they have a copy right now. They provide that to a neutral judge or, or special master that reviews that. The magistrate then, or, or special master, returns the documents that they say are actually relevant. Is there anybody that is going to actually question the authenticity of that? The chain of custody isn't broken. Was the chain of custody broken in O'Connor? Yeah, but couldn't you agree with me, counsel, that if you were on the other side, would you not be arguing that that's, that's obviously decisions and strategy decisions that you would want to make on behalf of your client rather than the court directing essentially, oh, that's not going to happen, so therefore we're just going to grant that request? I mean, I, you're a very good litigator, and my, my, my thought would be that that is what you would be arguing. If, if that I would argue that the chain of custody was that you would argue that that is for you to be able to make those arguments before a district court judge in regards to whether they should be returned or not rather than us saying return them it's not an issue there won't be a foundation um, that it's not it's not it's not going to happen Justice McKeague I can honestly tell the court and now every prosecutor in the world can use this against me I would not 
show up in front of you when you were a district court judge or frankly any district court judge and say that the very fact that documents were given to a court breaks a chain of custody with respect to authenticity. You might not, but others may. Yeah, but it's a dumb no argument. Offense. You're going to lose. We hear some of those. You're, you're going yeah, to lose that argument. That is not going to go well. And, and, and frankly, with respect to authenticity, when you have the state saying, this is the copy of the, of, of the stuff that we got, we gave you the entire thing, and this is a subset of that, and you put somebody on the stand that says, I provided the special master with this amalgamation of data, and now these documents that are coming out are just a part and parcel of that, and that it's some, somehow loses And what about the search warrant? Because I'm looking at the warrant, which is the warrant, um, which says <laughs> which says documents pertaining to MWNJS, which I think was the point that Mr. Schmidt was trying to make. What about the fact that it does specifically relate to files related to those, those um, initials? Now, I understand one of your arguments being that the one name apparently is a very common name. Yes. But other than that, what, what would be your response? It's, it's, and first, I would argue, Justice McCaig, that that's you know, a little like other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? <laughs> you know, so you know, it's, it's, a, it's a bad event. That's number one. And then number two, look at the respondent's addendum at page 18, and they're talking about the search of the laptop. Searches were run, and I'm quoting, searches were run in, for terms related to the names and email addresses of MW and JS, terms related to RP's name, terms in related to a CI firm in form. In addition to the searches, some documents dated on or after May 1, 2018 were manually reviewed. This was due to the fact that not all files are searchable. That's true with respect to a terabyte WD passport. That's true with a two, a two gigabyte black USB stick. And that's true with respect to the HP all-in-one PC, which is another 500 gigabyte drive. Each one of the, those documents that they're looking at are privileged. These are confidential communications of clients that have nothing to do with this case. And they're still How, how do you it. know that? Well, because, well, we filed an affidavit on June 6th from KM saying that these, these electronic files contain confidential communications. Right, that they contain, but I'm imagining, I mean, again, we don't know, but I'm imagining there's a whole lot of stuff on that computer. The very fact that these, that the state is saying it's more likely than not. He answered the question of Justice Lillehog saying it was probably true that they had reviewed privileged material. One privileged document is too many, Chief Justice. Why can't we well, just- Well, there are circumstances though, counsel, when the privilege gives way. Yes. I mean, what if it was an emergency? What if a child had been kidnapped? Yes. And the life was in danger? Yes. And, and, and what, what if there were codes in an attorney's office that, that could disarm the nuclear device? I'm not saying that there's not exigent circumstances and exception where there, that, that could be involved. That's not the case here. And I'm not saying that you couldn't fashion a, a review that said, listen, in just about all cases, we're going to have a neutral judge look at this absent exigent circumstances. But this fraud So case, then the judge sort of becomes an arm of the prosecutor. Well, this is not any different than it is any other case about when and when Well, sure it is. Exist. I mean, we don't judges don't review evidence as part of a police investigation and no, tell the police what evidence they can look at to further their investigation. Well, they just did with respect to President Trump when they looked at Mr. Cohen's file. Please let's not go there. Okay. <laughs> A former Article III judge was set up by the court in order to review items of privilege in that case and give them to the and give them to the investigators in order to determine what was relevant and what was not privileged. Which brings me to Justice Chuch's uh, one of the points that you made with respect to the crime fraud exception. It might very well be applicable here, but that is not the duty of the police to determine when that's applicable and when it's not. That's the duty of the courts, and that can't be done unless these privileged documents are actually given to a judge or somebody that actually carries the imprimatur of the courts. And that's why it's so applicable. And the, the one thing with respect to these team teams, again, Justice McKee, when I appeared before you in the district court, if, if I would have come to you in a civil case and said, my adversary has given me 2,000 client files, but don't worry, Jenny Robbins is my partner, I'm gonna give them all to her. She's going to review them and tell me what's relevant and give them to me. We don't need to give them to the other side. You would laugh me out of court. It, it's absurd. But suddenly, when somebody's liberty is at stake, when somebody's freedom is at stake, we permit it. That makes no sense. Judges are judges, and you are to determine and the final arbiter of what is privileged and what is not. 
And when we abdicate that responsibility, then lawyers stop functioning being lawyers. And frankly, one of the more devious things that a prosecutor could do right now, one of the things, frankly, were I a government attorney on this record still do right now, I would go, I would find a former uh, client of Bill Mosey or Joe Freeberg, have them say something bad about them, implicate them in criminal responsibility, do a search warrant on their office, go through their privileged documents and use the plain view exception under United States versus Wong in order to get additional search warrants on the basis of what they found. United States versus Wong as a Ninth Circuit case involved a computer where they were looking for a murder and they came across different documents during that search that indicated child pornography. Plain view exception applied. So what's to stop them from looking at Freeburger Mozzie's files and saying, oh, look at what I found here with respect to the Petters case. I'm gonna go find that. And these are admissions of clients. This is the most cherished thing that we have in our system, a fundamental constitutional right. We need to protect it. And that's why Justice Hudson, I would just ask, plead, that with respect to this record, with respect to these clients that are sitting there in the possession of the state right now, that that be stopped immediately. That does, should not have to await another district court order. That needs to be done now. Thank you, counsel. Your red light's on. Sorry. Thank you, Your Honor. Thanks to all counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. Um, we're going to uh, spend some time now with the students and take some questions. Um, but before we do that, I would like everybody please to thank the attorneys for coming on the road with us. We really appreciate it, counsel. Thank you.